0: Brought to you by GSK. Shingles doesn't have an off-season, so make sure to recommend vaccination throughout the year. Learn more by visiting shinglesseason.com. Hello and welcome to the October 3rd, 2023 Annals of Internal Medicine Podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm looking forward to sharing a quick overview of the new material you'll find at annals.org. The first new article to mention is an American College of Physicians position paper that addresses grateful patient fundraising. Philanthropic support remains very important to the financial health and implementation of the mission of hospitals and health systems in the United States. One approach to fundraising, often called grateful patient fundraising, however, raises ethical concerns. Questions have been raised about the appropriateness of physician involvement in such activities. The American College of Physicians addresses whether physicians should ever be asking patients or their families for philanthropic support, since such requests have the potential to create tension and undermine the trust at the heart of the doctor patient relationship. Such requests from physicians could also create expectations for preferential patient treatment when all patients should be receiving optimal care delivery. Involving physicians in philanthropic requests also creates situations in which confidential patient information might be used for non-clinical purposes. Using the patient-physician relationship and knowledge of the patient's medical history and clinical status, personal information, and financial circumstances are some of the reasons development and administrative officials might see physicians as strong potential fundraisers. But use of this intimate knowledge is among the reasons why physician involvement in philanthropic, grateful patient fundraising is ethically problematic. Go to annals.org for ACP's full guidance on this potentially vexing issue. The next article reports a study of more than one million Swedish men followed for up to 50 years that found that higher blood pressure at age 18 was associated with an increased risk for major cardiovascular events later in life. Worldwide, hypertension is the leading cause of cardiovascular disease and premature death. The association between blood pressure levels and cardiovascular outcomes has been extensively studied in middle-aged and older persons, but much less is known about the association between blood pressure in adolescence and future cardiovascular events. Researchers studied 1,366,519 men enlisted in the Swedish military between 1969 and 1997 to measure the association between high blood pressure in adolescence and risk for cardiovascular events in adulthood. The participants' baseline blood pressure was measured during conscription. Using the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association guidelines for classifying blood pressure elevation, the baseline blood pressure was classified as elevated when it was 120 to 129 over less than 80 milligrams of mercury, and hypertensive when it was above 130 over 80. Based on these measurements, 28.8% of participants had an elevated baseline blood pressure and 53.7% had a hypertensive baseline blood pressure. Over up to 50 years of follow-up, the researchers found a substantial and gradual absolute risk increase across blood pressure categories for all major cardiovascular outcomes in adulthood. One in 10 adolescents with combined stage 2 hypertension would have a major cardiovascular event before retirement whereas those with blood pressure below 120 over 80 would not. According to the authors, the results of this study highlight the possibility of identifying persons with increased cardiovascular risk late in adolescence, enabling early intervention to prevent cardiovascular disease. This possibility should encourage the routine measurement of blood pressure in adolescence, which is not currently routine practice. Missed insulin injections and inadequate dose titration of daily basal insulins can lead to suboptimal glycemic control in persons with type 2 diabetes. Once-weekly insulin Icodec is a basal insulin analog that is in development and is aimed at reducing treatment burden. A once-weekly dosing schedule could improve treatment adherence satisfaction and glycemic control. The next article reports a trial that randomly assigned 1085 insulin-naive adults with type 2 diabetes in seven countries to either weekly Icodec titrated with a Dosing Guide app or once-daily basal insulin dose per standard practice. The two groups were compared for effectiveness and safety. The authors found that participants using Icodec with the app experienced a greater hemoglobin A1c reduction, treatment satisfaction, and adherence compared to participants using the once-daily dosing of a basal insulin analog. According to the authors, the use of iCodec with a dosing guide app could conceivably address several challenges seen in everyday practice, including inadequate dose titration and non-adherence to prescribed treatment regimens for patients with type 2 diabetes. And staying with the topic of diabetes, next is a brief research report including more than 900 adults with type 1 diabetes that found that 37%, or nearly 4 in 10 participants, were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes after age 30. Adult-onset type 1 diabetes is frequently misdiagnosed as type 2 diabetes, leading to inappropriate care. Clarifying the burden of adult-onset type 1 diabetes in the general population may help reduce misdiagnosis. Retrospective studies have shown that patients with giant cell arteritis and vascular 18F fluorodeoxyglucose uptake at diagnosis are at increased risk of developing aortic complications. The next article is a prospective study that aimed to confirm the association between vascular FDG uptake at diagnosis and the evolution of aortic dimensions in patients with giant cell arteritis. Between 2012 and 2020, patients with giant cell arteritis that had FDG PET imaging at diagnosis less than three days after initiation of glucocorticoids were followed for two or more years. PET scans were scored from zero to three at seven vascular areas, and a total vascular score was calculated. PET scans were considered positive in cases of FDG uptake greater than or equal to grade two in any large vessel. Patients underwent CT imaging at diagnosis and yearly thereafter for up to 10 years. The researchers found that the increase in ascending and descending aortic diameter and in thoracic aortic volume was higher in patients with a positive PET scan compared to those without. This increase was also significantly associated with total vascular score. FDG uptake was not associated with an increase in abdominal aortic dimensions but thoracic aortic aneurysms were more frequently observed in patients with a positive PET scan. These findings suggest that PET imaging at the time of giant cell arteritis diagnosis may help to estimate the risk of aortic aneurysm formation. Bronchiectasis in individuals with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, characterized by airflow obstruction on spirometry, is associated with greater mortality. However, whether suspected bronchiectasis seen on computed tomography with clinical manifestations but normal spirometry is also associated with mortality is unknown. To determine the association between suspected bronchiectasis and mortality in individuals with normal spirometry, preserved ratio-impaired spirometry, and obstructive spirometry, the study reported in the next article enrolled patients 45 to 80 years old with 10 plus pack years of smoking history. Among 8,088 participants, 17.5% had suspected bronchiectasis. During a median follow-up of 10.7 years, about one quarter of them died. Mortality risk was increased in smoking participants with suspected bronchiectasis on CT imaging, regardless of whether spirometry showed obstructive disease or not. Atrial fibrillation is often detected for the first time in patients during a hospitalization for another reason. Long-term rates of atrial fibrillation recurrence in such patients are unclear. The authors of the next article estimated the rate of AFib recurrence in patients with new-onset AFib during a hospitalization for non-cardiac surgery or medical illness compared to a matched population that did not have an AFib episode during hospitalization. Participants wore a 14-day ECG monitor at one and six months. The primary outcome was atrial fibrillation for more than 30 seconds or captured by 12-lead ECG. They were followed for 12 months. After one year, atrial fibrillation was detected in 33.1% of cases and 5% of controls. Results were similar for the medical and surgical illness groups. The authors conclude that among patients who experience transient, new-onset atrial fibrillation during a hospitalization for non-cardiac surgery or medical illness, approximately one in three will have recurrent atrial fibrillation within one year. Primary osteoporosis is characterized by decreasing bone mass and density and reduced bone strength that leads to a higher risk for fracture, especially hip and spine fracture. The prevalence of osteoporosis in the United States is estimated at 47.5% for adults over the age of 50. It is most frequently diagnosed in white and Asian females, but can still affect males and females of all ethnicities. This condition is considered a major health issue, which has prompted the development and uses several performance measures to assess and improve the effectiveness of screening, diagnosis, and treatment. These measures are often used in pay-for-performance, public reporting, and or accountability programs. However, the validity, reliability, grounding in evidence, attribution, and meaningfulness of performance measures have been questioned. In the next article, the American College of Physicians' Performance Measurement Committee reviews current performance measures on osteoporosis to inform physicians, payers, and policymakers of the quality of the performance measures for this condition. The Committee identified six osteoporosis performance measures relevant to internal medicine physicians, only one of which was found to be valid. Additional new material on Annals.org includes the latest episode of the Annals on Call podcast and new ACP Journal Club summaries. The topic of the Annals on Call podcast discusses whether patients on chronic colchicine have a reduced risk of joint replacement. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening. Go to Analyst.org to take a look at the new material I've mentioned. You can earn CME and MOC credit if you do. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support. Brought to you by GSK. Shingles doesn't have an off-season, so make sure to recommend vaccination throughout the year. Learn more by visiting ShinglesSeason.com.